This is an ABC podcast. Manuia Letayal, aloha kako, and good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. I'm your host, Eggy Dubol, back on a Monday morning. And I want to say malo pito. Thank you for tuning in. I do hope your weekend has treated you well. If there is anything I actually really miss back at home is Sunday tonai. It is a Sunday family feast with some good old island food. Well... Today, we'll definitely be serving you a platter of what's the latest in our news and current affairs. So today's show, we've got Pacific experiencing an unusual cold snap. To Fiji, we get the latest in the Bainimarama trial and, of course, allegations of bribery within Nauru detention centres. For any of these stories, make sure you head to our website. In your search engine, you just need to type ABC Pacific and would love for you to share across all your social media platforms. Again, I'm Aggie Dubol and this is Pacific Beat. If there is anything Pacific Islanders know how to do, it's our ability to adapt to the extremes of our natural environment. Cyclones, volcanic eruptions and the impacts of climate change are elements we've learned to live with. But the cold weather is an unusual one. As Adele Fruin reports, parts of the Pacific are experiencing a near-record cold snap. As a shop owner in Tonga's capital, Nukualofa, Rita Prima gets all sorts of unusual requests. But lately, a few products have been more popular than others. You know, we've got customers coming in for, you know, coffee mugs or vacuum flasks, uh, insulated bottles, teapots, you know, keeping their, their hot beverages much warmer and um, through these colder nights. And also, you know, warm blankets, socks and what not just to, you know, get them through these colder temperatures. Last week, the country recorded its second lowest temperature ever at 9.3 degrees. It was just short of the lowest temperature recorded in the country at 8.7 degrees in September 1994. The temperatures are so chilly that residents are walking around wearing beanies, scarves and buffer jackets. Acting Tonga High Commissioner to Australia, Curtis Tuilangi, was in the capital last week. He says it got so cold some institutions were calling for help. Just a few days ago, it went down all the way to 10 degrees and uh, there was some call for uh, from the uh, prison who are totally totally prison and also the uh, hospital for the uh, the psychic ward he says pacific islanders often joke about tonga being too cold for them but this week it became a reality when samoan and fijian come to tonga they always say oh we are in new zealand because we are much colder than them uh, and then now we don't need to be in New Zealand. You just come to Tonga, you are definitely in New Zealand. Experts say the cause of cold temperatures is because of Tonga's location near the edge of the tropics. They say a developing El Nino event and a weather system has channeled air from the south of the country. And they say if the developing El Nino continues into a moderate or strong El Nino, it will likely bring a period of below average rainfall and lower nighttime temperatures.
The cold temperatures are not just being felt in Tonga. Fiji residents are reporting below average temperatures along with the people of Samoa. Especially July, August. Uh, these are the recorded as coldest months. Samoa's Meteorological Service Assistant Chief Executive of ESE, Dr. Lutero Tawale. He says Samoa's average maximum temperature is around 28 or 29 degrees, and some places near the capital were hitting the low 20s at high teens last week. Although it is not as cold as Tonga, he says his team is working to get more accurate readings. In the past, uh, some of the villagers from, from Savai, they call in and they told us they um, uh, uh, saw frost. Uh, you know, leaves uh, being uh, frost because of ice at the top of the mountain. And he says with the impact of climate change, the weather will get harder to predict. We've seen that um, the completely change of uh, climate and weather patterns. Huh? You know, we are in a transition and we are experiencing uh, 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 heavy rain. For 82-year-old Salmon Reverend Vayao Ilima Itiwati, the cold weather is much more meaningful than just putting on an extra layer. For him and the people of Samoa, the cold winds are referred to as Tua'oloa, and they hold special meaning. Oloa means richness, abundance, prosperity, plenty. He says the people of Samoa rely on the environment and they must treat the Tuaoloa with respect. Uh, shark, snaring, one of that. Ponito uh, fishing, you cannot do it because Tuaoloa is a precarious, un, you know, un, a, it's unreliable as far as the people are concerned. <clears throat> because it can be gentle. It also can be very violent, and it's cold. He says the recent cold weather can also bring danger, and he is urging all islanders to look after their elders. So Allah can really uh, bring the climate uh, weather down to 17. That's too much for the elder. Uh, so usually during that period, right now, where I know, uh, quite a lot of the elders pass away. So he's a... It's something that's expected of Isamwa. And that's Reverend Vayal Alailima Etiwati ending that report from Adal Fruin in Apia, Samoa. After more than two weeks, the trial of a former Fiji Prime Minister, Frank Bainimarama and suspended police commissioner, Siti Venikiriho, is approaching its final phases. The prosecution is accusing the two men of interfering in a police investigation into corruption allegations at the University of the South Pacific. So joining us now from Suva is ABC's reporter in Fiji, Lide Mavono. If there I say, Bola Lide Good to hear you this morning. Yeah, thank you very much for joining us. Look, Lide, what's the latest in the trial of Frank Bonimarama and Siti Venikiliho?
Aggie, former Fijian Prime Minister Frank Mbainamarama faces one count of attempting to avert the cause of justice and suspended police commissioner Brigadier General Sitiveni Ngiliho faces a charge of abuse of office. If convicted, Frank Mbainamarama could face five years in jail while Ngiliho could spend a decade in a Fijian prison. The charges are in relation to police investigations into the University of the South Pacific. As you know, the USP is owned by the Pacific Islands Forum. So that's all of the governments of the Pacific Islands, including Australia and New Zealand. And the two are alleged to have ended that investigation in early 2022. Now, we're in the final stages of that trial, as you mentioned. So we've had quite a few of the most senior police officers testify against their former police commissioner, Giliho. Today, we will see the final state witness, and that is appearing for the prosecution. He is the former director of the Criminal Investigations Department, Serpipeline Ko. So far, Giliho insists he did not call for a halt into the investigations, but only asked for an update. But so far, we're hearing, we're seeing a steady line of senior police officers saying the same thing, that they were instructed by the Brigadier General to stop investigations in the University of the South Pacific and that he is alleged to have said on the phone to his police officers that the instructions had come from the Prime Minister's office. So pretty um, uh, explosive evidence appearing in court or being heard in court now, Aggie. Lida, you've already answered my question. I was going to ask you if there was any more witnesses to take stand, but it seems like there's only one more for today. The big question, though, is will the former prime minister take the stand as a defence witness? Aggie, it's a question I have asked since the beginning, and both Devanesh Sharma, the Defence Counsel, as well as the Acting Director of Public Prosecutions, Rata David Tongdivalo, have been mum on that. In fact, um, they have not given us the list of witnesses, which is something that we are usually able to get at the beginning. Um, so far, the, the consensus among you know journalists, all of us covering this trial, is that we may not hear Frank Bainamarama on the stand. He is not a man of very many words. Um, but it's a it's a wait-and-see game as well, Aggie. I am most definitely excited about uh, being in court for this week now that we're at the end of what has been a very long and quite controversial trial. Yes, you're listening to Pacific Beat. I'm Aggie Dubow, and on the line with me from Suva is our ABC reporter, Lide Movono, uh, talking about the trial of Bainimarama and Sitiveni uh, Kiliho. For uh, former Prime Minister Bainimarama, Look, he founded Fiji's first political party. Has this case, uh, I suppose, affected his or even the popularity of the party? Well, I think that um, the Fiji First Party continues to remain one of the most popular parties here in Fiji. In the last general elections, Banmarama has continued to poll much higher, substantially higher than even his closest competitor. And even in the past elections, which changed the future for the uh, Fiji First Party, as well as, of course, for Fijian politics in general, Fiji First continued to be, you know, the most popular party. Um, however, we have seen waning interest in 
and the crowds, the crowds that come to support Frank Bainimarama and his police commissioner are considerably less. I must be fair, though, Aggie, and say we've had quite unusual cold, windy, rainy weather in Fiji, so not really conducive to, you know, crowds in the court area. But we're definitely seeing less people um, interested, less people coming to cheer Frank Bainimarama, which is usually what we see when the man is out in public. Yeah, that's it. Has this trial really drawn much interest from the public? I mean, is weather really the only reason? That's right. I mean, um, you know, from, from from the general public, there is a lot of, um, I think, uh, people are pleased to see uh, justice take its course. People are pleased to see this out in, you know, in, in court, in the public domain, because the, the University of the South Pacific, as I mentioned earlier, is a very important part of Pacific regionalism. All of the who's who in, in, in the entire Pacific, the people who lead governments and, you know, movers and shakers of the region were educated at this university. And so, um, People were very aware of the financial scandal that rocked the University of the South Pacific some uh, four or five years ago now. So there's a lot of interest in seeing this case through. Lee, they'd like to know what do the coming days and week look like, though, at court? Well, we do know that the final um, state witness is the former uh, head of the Criminal Investigations Department who is alleged to have received the instructions from uh, Commissioner Giliho. He will take the stand around noon today. After that, we expect that the defense will be given the opportunity to um, uh, bring their witnesses to, to the stand too. If that does not happen, then we can expect the two counsels to sum up in court and it could be as early as the end of the week, um, Aggie, when we will hear whether or not either of these men uh, are being convicted. And I think inside of a fortnight, um, we will know whether or not uh, one of these two of the strongest men to have led Fiji over the last 16 years um, is going to jail. Yet they still want to declare their innocence? That's right. Um, Brigadier General Sitivin Giliho insists that he had asked for the case to be um, halted so that he could get an update for the Prime Minister. However, right now, all of the evidence against him is saying he didn't ask for a halt. He asked for the case to be filed away, which is police terminology for you know putting the case away. And the, the officers who are taking the stand are even going on to say that they made sure the file was safe in case there was a change of government so that, you know, the investigations could see the light of day. So right now we're seeing a steady stream of people who used to be subordinates to Police Commissioner Sitivin Ngiliho testifying against him. Mm. Lee, I'd just like you to maybe repeat to us, to our listeners again, could this trial see the peers serve time in prison and what would the prison sentences look like? Former Fijian Prime Minister Frank Panamarama faces one count of attempting to avert the court of justice, and that carries a five years custodial sentence. Suspended Police Commissioner Brigadier General Sitivin Ngili Ho faces one charge of abuse of office, and that carries a 10-year um, uh, prison sentence. So we could see these men in, in jail for at least five years. Look, I just want to say Vinaka there for your time this morning. Really appreciate uh, the update and uh, hopefully we will get another one from you uh, at the end of this court trial. Malo and Vinaka Aggie.
Staying in Fiji, where a food bank says the increase in the country's value-added tax is burdening already struggling families. The government increased the VAT from 9 to 15% in its recent budget to raise much-needed revenue and to pay off public debt. The Competition and Consumer Commission says some opportunistic traders have used the increase to inadequately hike prices for some goods like chicken. Jan Kahoot reports. Last week, Fijian Prime Minister Sitiveni Rambuka again asked people to understand that the VAT increase is for the good of the nation. As your Prime Minister, I plead once again for your understanding. As I have said, the primary objective of the budget is to address the problems and the challenges we face as a nation. The increased price of goods and services are affecting many people, including charity food banks. Compassion Fiji's Veronica Paul says families that were already struggling are really feeling the pinch. They said, uh, how can we afford to feed my family? How can I afford to feed my family? The children, children what this, children what that. And I'm trying to tell them what you need the most important, the healthy food, not all this chocolate, ice cream and things like that. So uh, they have to relearn how to uh, make do with, especially the families that are really struggling. Compassion Fiji depends on voucher donations, which have also been affected by the increase in prices. Mrs Paul is unsure whether she'll be able to help people next month. I don't know because we just finished using our our voucher, the last one, uh, this month. And uh, so we, uh, we we don't know how it's going to go. <laughs> yeah. No, wait, wait and see. The CEO of Fiji Competition and Consumer Commission, Joel Abraham, says some traders have taken advantage of the VAT hike to increase the price of popular food items, such as chicken, to unacceptable margins. Some of the prices that increased were all the way up, up to 30%. Because chicken is a non-price control item, it's not not subject to price control. So traders had uh, increased the prices as per their their own businesses and uh, their own pricing practices. He says there's been complaints about a range of different food items to the commission. Uh, well, generally, I think uh, I mean nobody wants a price increase. Generally, in the market, the, there have been concerns coming. I mean, people have been complaining to us about the exorbitant increase, and chicken price was was a good example. But Veronica Paul says she's now very careful about what she buys for her donations. I have to be very careful what I do, how what I buy, and uh, what I don't. And uh, it's like getting the most the things that we really need, not all those. Other things that uh, you know you see, you would like to buy. Despite the pain, she does believe the tax increase is fair. I didn't realize that um, because of the value-added tax, what the country is going through at present, and uh, it's a good thing in a way. And yet, I suppose I feel sorry, more sorry for the families that are really struggling. Veronica Paul and Suva ending that report from Jan Kahoot.
Now, the U.S. ambassador to Australia says Washington is ready to provide hundreds of millions of dollars to Solomon Islands, but is waiting for permission from the nation's government. Caroline Kennedy is in the region to mark the 80th anniversary of her father, former U.S. President John F. Kennedy, who helped save the crew of his torpedo boat after it was destroyed by a Japanese warship during the Second World War. Kennedy told ABC's Solomon Islands reporter Chris Narita Almanuleong that she's grateful to be able to pay tribute to her father's legacy. Last year when I came to the Solomon Islands, I was really overwhelmed by the history, by the sacrifice, by the way that, um, that the Solomon Islanders and um, the Americans and our allies had all worked together so long ago. And I was overwhelmed by the fact that it was so long ago, but really it wasn't. It was a story that I grew up with. And I really wanted to come back to say thank you in a personal way to the families of the um, scouts who rescued my father. And so this year is the 80th anniversary of that event. And it's really meaningful to be here with my son, to meet the children and grandsons of the scouts who rescued him, and to to recognize their bravery and their skill and we wouldn't our family story wouldn't be the same without them and I probably wouldn't even be here so this is a really important uh, trip for me personally and I think also it's an important time for the US Solomon Islands relationship so I'm I'm glad to be here representing President Biden. Ambassador Kennedy is hard to ignore geopolitics uh, these days and um, in your recent interview with Australia's RN Breakfast, you said that the United States sees great importance to reopen its embassies um, and re-engage in long-standing people-to-people ties and that USA is excited to be back. Now, after all these years, Ambassador, why should Solomon Islands place its trust in the United States? We want people to believe that this is that we are committed and I think that we have, we're just waiting for the Solomon Island government to give us permission. Um, but we, we're eager to, to work on the unexploded ordinance issues, to help with climate change, education, Peace Corps. So, so I think it's too bad we weren't here, but we're here now, and I think we want to build for the future. Talk a little bit about um, ordinances. Now, 80 years on um, since the World War II, the usual narrative is about liberating um, liberating the islands um, from Japan. And what's often not talked about is how World War II paved the way for strengthening colonial control and the use of Pacific islands for military purposes. Um, some islands, if um, I can remember, that were used for um, nuclear weapons testing included the Bikini Atoll in the Marshall Islands, um, Masi Atoll in Kiribati, among the others. Now, what's usually not talked about is what's left behind, including the UXOs, um, like you spoke about earlier. Um, when Wendy Sherman, the Deputy Secretary of State, uh, was here last year with you as well, um, she acknowledged the tragedies with UXO. But some Solomon Islanders say there is not um, much or there's not many announcements on stronger commitment from the United States, uh, part of cleaning its mess, and not only in Solomon Islands, uh, but in other Pacific Island countries. Well, the United States does have the largest program. We spend almost $700 million a year on this. We believe in taking responsibility for our actions. Wendy Sherman 
announced a commitment of a million dollars, which is already being spent here. We have offered two million more dollars to help with um, requests, and so we're just waiting for the sign-off from the government. But I think it's it's a it's a commitment that we take very very seriously. Uh, we recognize that there is a legacy, um, and also that um, that was a conflict that the United States didn't start either. So um, we too have a history that we. Um, we lost a lot of people. We understand our commitment to this region um, and our and our responsibility to um, to do whatever we can to um, to improve the lives of the people here to so that they don't suffer from um, the the lingering effects of the war. So I think that we're we're ready to help. We are already working on mapping this entire country. Um, and so I think we'll see progress now. Final question, um, the Solomon Islands and other Pacific Island countries, they rely heavily on aid um, and development assistance. Um, Cook Islands Prime Minister yesterday, on um, last I told the ABC's The Pacific Show that Pacific leaders are amplifying their voices in the current geopolitical tussle for influence. Uh, Prime Minister Manasseh Sogavari continues to leverage support from donor partners for its development needs. How, what's USA's view on well, the United States is eager to sign a sort of a comprehensive development assistance agreement. Um, USAID administrator has made that really clear, so we're just waiting for the Solomon Islands to um, agree. We have, um, we have a lot of infrastructure funding that could be deployed here, hundreds of millions of dollars. So we're really waiting. We've made a number of, we've offered a number of, of programs, um, Peace Corps development assistance, climate change assistance. We are working um, in different provinces on climate change, sustainable farming. I met with women who are um, harvesting in a sustainable way and, and using that to uh, support their families, to help educate their children. It's being funded by the United States. So we're here to listen. We have offered um, a number of initiatives in response to what we've heard from the community, but I think that's the way the United States, we want to find out what the Solomon Islands really wants and needs, and then we would like to meet those needs and help people um, improve their lives in the future of this country so that we can all work together. Caroline Kennedy, the U.S. Ambassador to Australia and daughter of the late U.S. President John F. Kennedy. Speaking to ABC's reporter in Solomon Islands, Chris Narita Almanu Leong. Stay tuned. Up next, we'll get into our news wrap with producer Nick Fogarty. Days Like These, the Pacific is a program about those days that go spectacularly wrong or go brilliantly right. The best days, the worst days. One Pacific person with one story about the day when everything changed. It's about the risks we take and the decisions we make. Chance encounters, secrets revealed, sometimes funny, sometimes scary, sometimes both. But always the best story you'll hear all week. Tune in to Days Like These, The Pacific, Tuesday mornings at 9.30 on ABC Radio Australia. That's right, it is time for our news wrap uh, to get what is the latest uh, across the region. And joining us this morning is, of course, producer Nick Fogarty with that. I say good morning. How are you doing? Good, Aggie. How are you? I am good. Look, let's get straight into it because I feel like there's quite a few things that have been happening in the Pacific, specifically Fiji. Uh, there's been condemnation from some quarters of the Fijian Prime Minister's backing of Japan's plans uh, to release this treated nuclear wastewater into the Pacific. Yeah, so on Thursday, Prime Minister Sitaveni Rambuka announced 
announced he was satisfied with Japan's efforts to demonstrate that the release of the wastewater from the Fukushima plant will be safe uh, on the basis that he trusted the report of the International Atomic Energy Agency. Since then, however, the Alliance for Future Generation Fiji has released a statement condemning Sitaveni Rambuka's stance, saying that it's deeply concerned by his statement and that the wastewater release has the potential to inflict lasting damage to marine ecosystems, threatening the livelihoods of countless communities that depend on the ocean for sustenance and economic well-being. The AFG goes on to urge Rambuka's government to reconsider its stance and also urges Pacific leaders to trust the independent panel of scientific experts who have been appointed by the Pacific Islands Forum to review the data and the information provided by Japan. Nice. I think that's a developing story, so we'll keep our eyes and ears on that one. Uh, A review, though, now into New Zealand's defence capabilities has warned uh, that the country needs to strengthen its Pacific ties and up its spending. Yes. Late last week, New Zealand launched its first ever national security strategy, Uh, with Defence Minister Andrew Little saying the country faced more geostrategic challenges than it had in decades. So as The Guardian reports, China is a focus of the document, with one section noting that Chinese state-sponsored actors had exploited cyber vulnerabilities in ways that undermined New Zealand's security. Uh, The review also states that New Zealand's military needs more investment, equipment and training to be ready for armed conflict and disaster relief operations, uh, and it also prioritised deeper defence ties with Australia and closer links to other partners in the region, including the US, with the report saying its presence in the Indo-Pacific is critical for New Zealand's security. Sounds often the same rhetoric that we keep hearing mm. with China having an influence in the Pacific. Yeah. Uh, look, we end off with a sports. Uh, rugby's Pacific Nations Cup has actually wrapped up over the weekend, and it's Fiji who's come out on top. Sure is. A commanding 35-12 to 12 win by the Flying Fijians over Japan in Tokyo has seen them secure a clean sweep in their final game of the Pacific Nations Cup. So as Fiji Village reports, it was a dominant performance with five tries to two after Japan was reduced to 14 players early on after flanker Peter Labashain was red-carded for a high-shot tackle on Fiji's Vilimoni Botitu. It was 21-0 at half-time, but then Japan tightened up their defence a bit in the second half, and the team's traded tries before Fiji's substitute half-back Frank Lamani scored his second try right before the final whistle. And meanwhile, as part of the same tournament in Apia, Manu Samoa took care of Tonga with a 34-9 victory, with Tonga actually kept tryless. For Samoa, it was hooker Sama Malolo, he scored the lone try in the first half before three individual scorers each added one in the second half. So as a result, it's Fiji who took home the championship, winning all three of their matches, and then Samoa, who'd beaten Japan, followed by Japan, and then the winless Tonga in fourth and last place. So an interesting form guide there for the upcoming World Cup. Look, I'm just going to say congratulations, <laughs> Fiji. I do feel for my homeland, Tonga, but hey, that's okay. Um, they're still on the up yep. and up. Bigger um, and better things to happen in the World Cup, hopefully. Yeah. Transparency International Australia says a government inquiry into Australia's regional processing procurement is an important step towards ending corruption in the Pacific. 
Last week, Australia's government announced an independent review into the programme, which includes current and former detention centres on Nauru and Papua New Guinea's Manus Island. After revelations, the Home Affairs Department granted contracts to companies linked to a bribery investigation. A report by the Sydney Morning Herald, where former Director of Contractor Paladin claims he reported allegations of bribery in PNG to Home Affairs, but was ignored. TIA CEO Clancy Moore told reporter Mackenzie Smith the inquiry is an important moment for Australia's accountability in the Pacific. Yeah, this inquiry into Australia's offshore processing regime and issues of integrity is incredibly important for accountability. We've seen allegations dating back more than a decade of kickbacks, bribery, inflated contracts, all involving Australian taxpayer money under the guise of the Home Affairs Department or its predecessor and a lot of money going to politicians both in Nauru and Papua New Guinea and the involvement of Australian contractors. So this inquiry will help bring to light important issues about who knew what in the department, who was responsible, how decisions were made, and hopefully answer the question, was the Department of Home Affairs simply asleep at the wheel or were they actually involved in giving a green light to these kickbacks and millions of dollars of payments to PNG and Nauru officials. And how much confidence do you have that this inquiry will be taken seriously given that the Home Affairs Department itself may be implicated? Look, the inquiry has a really broad terms of reference and has the power to make recommendations for the government. So I would imagine that there will be some very strong recommendations coming out of the inquiry, particularly around issues of contracting and procurement. Um, And the allegations are very, very serious. The whistleblower who came out uh, a few weeks ago said that he was encouraged to pay bribes um, and that when he was when he reported it also raised his concerns about the payment of bribes, he was told basically to not put anything in writing and to simply sweep it under the carpet as well. Um, the way that Home Affairs and its predecessor managed and managed the regional processing centres of offshore detention is such that they're almost in constant contact with the contractors who are dealing with local authorities. Um, And so they would have had to have known that these payments were taking place. They would have approved all of the contracts, most likely, um, and potentially looked the other way when allegations of bribery were either raised or payments were made to corrupt officials in both countries. So the allegations are very serious and This inquiry is incredibly important. And finally, what might this inquiry mean for the Pacific uh, in Australia's relationship with it more broadly? In terms of the context in the Pacific, Transparency International's research where we interviewed thousands of women and men across the Pacific, across 17 Pacific Island states and territories, showed a couple of things. Firstly, people in the Pacific are very 
optimistic and hopeful that their governments can change things and they're looking for leadership from their governments to improve policies around corruption. Secondly, it also showed the high rates of corruption and bribery that everyday Pacific Islanders face and are aware of as well. So I, I hope that this terrible scandal involving the Australian government and contractors and the running of our offshore processing centres uh, will ultimately lead to stronger governance and better anti-corruption institutions in Pacific Island nations like Papua New Guinea and Nauru. And this is really important. Um, for example, a lot of countries in the Pacific have independent anti-corruption agencies, but they're not funded. They're not properly resourced. Uh, Pacific Island leaders have come together recently and signed a Tenua vision, uh, a really strong anti-corruption declaration, but it needs to be backed up with action and implemented. So I hope that this situation and this inquiry will actually bolster efforts in the Pacific, not only with the Australian government, but also with Pacific Island leaders to have stronger uh, anti-corruption and good governance uh, policies and legislation, piece of legislation in place. That was Transparency International Australia's CEO, Clancy Moore, with that report by ABC's Mackenzie Smith. As Australia's Northern Territory looks to increase the number of US military forces stationed there, Pacific activists are warning of the risk this will pose to the local population. One Guam activist says her home island is now a target because of the growing presence of the US military, urging again residents to be cautious. Jane Barden with more. At a meeting in Darwin, residents gathered to hear about the experiences of communities on Guam and Okinawa Islands who host U.S. bases. In 1995, the rape of an elementary school girl by three U.S. soldiers drew international attention. Social and environmental impact questions were raised, but the biggest concern was whether the increasing U.S. military build-up in Australia's north could put towns like Darwin at risk. Darwin resident Justin Tutty is from the independent and peaceful Australian network. War fighting bases in the NT are going to make us a target. In Darwin and Catherine, the US is funding airbase runway upgrades and fuel storage tanks, which will increase the attacking range of bombers into Asia, and thousands of US Marines come to train each year. It's also funding a mission planning and squadron operations facility in Darwin. Justin Tutty is worried it all increases the likelihood Australia would follow the US into conflict. We're tying ourselves tighter and tighter to a foreign military power and each time that grows it makes it harder for Australia to choose not to participate in any future war that they might pick. Are there some parts of the US military build-up here that have particularly worried you? You know, we used to hear stories about co-location and rotational deployments, but lately the authorities are talking about lily pads as a springboard for war. And yeah, the concern is that there's a number of facilities under the Force Posture Agreement where the visitors have unimpeded access. This means that they can use bases here in Australia to deploy to wars in our region that we might not want to be part of. Indigenous Guam peace activist Moneka Flores, who spoke at the Darwin meeting, says Pacific communities have similar concerns. Guam, as well as Okinawa, the Philippines, Korea, and now even Darwin, our communities are being set up to be first strike communities. So should the United States enter into conflict with China or North Korea, we will be the sites of attack first. Nobody should take pride in being called the tip of the spear. 
Justin Tutty is also asking why the Australian government hasn't done more public consultation before agreeing to installations like the Darwin Mission Planning Facility. People at a grassroots level right around the country are starting to say, hang on, we need a say in this. The ABC asked the Australian Defence Minister and Defence Department to respond. The US consulate responded with a statement saying, The US is deepening our force posture cooperation with Australia, upgrading critical air bases in the Northern Territory, and these initiatives will strengthen our ability to respond to crises in the region while enhancing our interoperability. The Australian Strategic Policy Institute's Northern Australian analyst, Dr John Coyne, thinks public concerns are unfounded. The bricks and mortars of, of presence in the Indo-Pacific so and presence in um, Darwin and Northern Australia acts as a deterrence to future conflict. It shows the level of cooperation and commitment in the Australian-US alliance. Darwin and Northern Australia sits in a Goldilocks location. You know, it's in the Indo-Pacific. It's close enough to have a meaningful impact and be able to um, operate from. And it's far enough away from the South China Sea to not be able to be directly threatened in the case of a future conflict. It doesn't automatically mean that the US can operate through the north in a conflict without permission from the Australian government. Some people in the Darwin community feel that having more military assets here could potentially make Darwin more of a target. What's your view of that? The sort of assumption here is is that the Americans will make us a target. The assumption is that we're not already at a target. Any conflict in the region could result, whether or not there's a, um, a presence in Darwin, Secondly, Australia should be making the best decisions in terms of its national security based on its own interests, not on whether or not it is threatened or potentially threatened by other nations. Dr John Coyne from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute talking to Jane Barden. Four days of politics, culture and knowledge sharing at the Gama Festival in Arnhem Land in Australia's Northern Territory are coming to an end. It's the 24th festival and the first without Gama co-founder Unipingu and the first where his hope for constitutional recognition for Indigenous people is a possibility. Political reporter Dana Morse is there. As the Gama Festival winds down for another year, there's hope that long-sought-after change could be on the horizon. Yes campaigner Noel Pearson has been given a message from Yolnu country to take back to Canberra. And I'm going to tell the 97% of Australia to join us, that we have the authority from these people to bring this referendum to a successful conclusion. This is our time. But the prospect of a yes vote succeeding in the referendum on whether to establish an Indigenous voice to Parliament is growing more precarious. Polling conducted by Redbridge for the News Corp papers indicates a no vote is winning in all states. But those figures don't take undecided voters into account. Yes 23 director Dean Parkin says their campaign polling shows up to 40% of voters are yet to make up their minds. We've got the message, we've got the structure, we know the Australian people are up for this and we are absolutely focused on ramping up between now and the vote.
However, he concedes many Australians are preoccupied with issues other than the looming referendum. Undoubtedly, cost of living pressures are having a significant impact on the lives of Australians. We are absolutely sympathetic to that. And when the time comes to really turn our minds to this referendum, we know that there's an incredible amount of goodwill and generosity out there and we believe that that will, that will absolutely be powering us to a successful vote. While camping at Gama, families are well fed. But that's often not the case at home. Ratjui Melanie Herdman is one of the junior Yolnu leaders. Our remote communities and even a drive to the local store in Yirkala, that's where you notice the prices um, of food, fruit and veggies are often expensive. Ratjui says the issues of food security run deep. It's the access but it's also you know, the ability to do a grocery sh- shop for your household but your household might be 10 or more people. She believes a voice to parliament could help because many remote communities already have the solutions, but not always the power to implement them. Alpa stores, though, they've invested their own money into subsidising fruit and veggies, so that is a fair price. There are a lot of people in our communities that have worked and that have stories of how... Things can get better, but they're often not heard. Senior members of the No campaign chose not to attend the Gama Festival. Dana Morse with that report there. Just a reminder of our top story from today. Fiji's former Prime Minister Frank Bainwarama may face jail time for interfering in a police investigation into corruption allegations at the University of the South Pacific. We spoke to reporter Lide Movono to get the latest on his high-profile court case. Former Fijian Prime Minister Frank Bainwarama faces one count of attempting to avert the Court of Justice and that carries a five-year custodial sentence. Suspended Police Commissioner Brigadier General Sitiveni Ngili Hall faces one charge of abuse of office and that carries a 10-year prison sentence. So we could see these men in, in jail for at least five years. Stay tuned to ABC Radio Australia. Next is the news, followed by Jacob McGuire on Nisha Daily. Until then, I'm Aggie Dubol and this is Pacific Beat.